the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. It reads like a laundry list that could have been created by the devil himself. Terrorist attacks, mass shooting attacks on campuses, political strife, racism, economic instability, moral decline, church attendance decline, certainly true here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And it has to make you pause and wonder as we take account of what's going on not only on the, the stage um, morally, spiritually, politically across the globe, but certainly here at home, exactly what's going on. Where is the church? Where should we as Christians be in addressing all of this? Because we know ultimately the insights and the key to not only what's wrong, but what the solution is, is ultimately found in Scripture. A very special conference coming to the San Francisco Bay Area this weekend. We'll give you more details on that. But uh, meanwhile, I'd like to invite into our conversation tonight Pastor Andrew Chavaria. He is the pastor at Elkhart Church of Christ, a U.S. Army veteran, co-founder of Liberty Cannon Media Group, the executive director of the Truth and Liberty Foundation. It speaks all across the country in the topic of uh, culture, God, government, and where our nation is today, where it's headed spiritually, and most importantly, where is the church we need to be? And Andrew, great to have you on the program. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, we appreciate the opportunity. Boy, you know, kind of uh, taking the temperature, so to speak, morally and spiritually of where America is at today, it, it would seem that not only are we in trouble, but many would wonder, where does the church stand in all of this? I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that the mainstream church in America seemed to be supercharged politically. That certainly was true in the 1980s. We were on the cutting edge of, of addressing many moral and spiritual issues. Um, both from the pulpit as well as uh, from a political standpoint. But it seems as if in, in recent years there's kind of been an atrophying of not only the, the church's um, influence in the governance of our nation, but but even in terms of just our, our overall influence in, in the day-to-day uh, life in America. Why is that? You know, I, I think it boils down to, to uh, the simple aspect of turnover. Uh, when you think about, and what I mean by that is, We've lost some of the wise and old leadership that we had in the 80s, and we've now turned to individuals that grew up in the 60s and the 70s, those that grew up during the sexual revolution, and uh, those that grew up in a day and age where, uh, quite frankly, 
the theory of evolution and all of these things during the space race kind of rude the day in the classroom. And um, quite simply, I think Abraham Lincoln put it best. He said the philosophy of the classroom in one generation will be the philosophy of the government in the next. And uh, we now see what happens when you remove God. I mean, when you start about 1965, uh, 1965, we start removing God from the classroom. We start, uh, we start uh, going, going progressively through the years. We remove the Bible from classrooms. We remove prayer from classrooms. Um, then we start getting into the 70s, and now abortion becomes the norm with Roe v. Wade. Uh, then you get into the 90s, homosexuality uh, gets on the platform, and uh, now you get into the 2000s, and it's, it's the law of the land. Well, how did all of this happen? Well, it happens because people that grew up already sensitizing themselves to this aspect of life kind of just, just stay back. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, Abraham Lincoln said it best. This is now the philosophy of our government, and we now live in a place and time where um, I think, and this is just my personal philosophy, it's one of the reasons that I travel the country talking about this stuff, um, I think that it's also weighed heavy on our pulpits. Our pulpits aren't the same anymore. They're so watered down and uh, preaching a, a, you know, they're basically giving people a stick of cotton candy when they walk through the door and there's no truth being preached anymore. So really, in, in a large sense, then this is sort of the product of erosion. I mean, the, the old saying that yeah. the drip becomes the trickle that turns into the stream that becomes the river. And before you know it, it's cut the Grand Canyon. And in some respects, while we can't point to any singular event that um, is at the center of this. It's many of the events. It, it, it's, uh, you know, kicking God out of the classroom. Uh, you know, dare we put up the Ten Commandments to encourage students to do things like, I don't know, not steal, not kill, not lie, obey their parents, things of that sort. And so all of a sudden, then, you have a combination of what's taking place not only at the institutional level, within public education, certainly within right. higher education, the body politic, then we add to that. I think you're right. Some some levels of frustration in the pulpit in America today that and certainly this is not meant to be a blanket accusation, Pastor, no. but there are some pastors I think that would conclude that, you know, if I get up there and I start preaching sin, salvation, sanctification, start really talking about the tough, serious stuff that we see in Scripture, there'll be nobody there on Sunday morning. And, you know, we've got to pay an electric light bill and I have a salary that has to be paid. And, you know, we need to put new carpeting in the church. So I'm going to have to go a little bit easier on all of this. And as a result, we end up watering down the effectiveness of the gospel to the point where it has no effect. Right. And, and to me, when when that happens, and, and I mean, it, it's textbook. You see churches like this popping up everywhere. Um, you know, multi-million dollar buildings. They have the whole, you know, the whole band, the lights, the smoke, everything like that uh, to draw people to come in and do those things. And the sermon is just so fluffy that you just really don't get anything out of it. But I, I think what that is a product of is that's a product of Christians who have lost their identity. You know, when we when we start, and here's what I mean by that. So many people think that you go to church. And here's the thing, and this is coming from a guy that stands up almost every single Sunday behind a pulpit somewhere. If not my home church, I'm somewhere preaching and teaching the gospel. So, so just, you know, <laughs> stick with me when I say it, because I'm kind of talking to myself. But you don't come to church you go to worship god the bible actually teaches christians that we are the church we're the ones that are called out and when we get that in our mind when we start realizing that that is our identity we are the church and we stop going to church and we start going to worship god 
It doesn't matter what the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, the reverend, the minister, I don't care what you call it, it doesn't matter what he says. If it's true, you're there to worship God and you're going to accept it. So then the real distinction here is the difference between going to church and being the church. Yep. And that's why we are where we are today. And the the catalyst that, that this has happened, the reason that this has happened is because of the pulpit. Um, you know, Charles Finney is probably one of my favorite characters during the American Revolution. He was a he was a cleric during the American Revolution, and he actually says, I mean, I, and I'm just going to kind of quote this pretty quick, but he says, "Brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours in a great degree." Mm. Listen to what he says next, though. He says, "If there is if there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it." He says, if the press, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church grows degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. He goes on and he says, if the world loses interest in religion, that's key right now. That's You talked about in the introduction that so many people, even in the Bay Area, to a low attendance in churches. If people lose interest in religion, he says the pulpit's responsible for it. But I want you to see what happens next, because this is what we're talking about, the climate of where we are as a nation right now. He says if Satan rules in the halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundation of our government is ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he concludes, he says, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. The reason that Charles Finney could speak so boldly that way is because when we declared our independence, when we declared our independence, the king did not attribute George Washington, he did not attribute the Continental Army, he did not attribute the militia and the Minutemen, the, per, the, the people that they attributed American independence to, that our enemy attributed American independence to, was a group that he called the Black Robe Regiment. It was the pastors and the preachers of the day. He said it's because they're preaching truth and they're preaching liberty in Christ and they're preaching what we don't want them to preach. And that's where America spurned its freedom from. The pulpit was responsible for American freedom. Well, ironically enough, uh, you know, e- even a, a stranger to our land, a visitor, uh, de Tocqueville, made the exact same observation in terms of the impact and importance of what takes place at the pulpit. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we have to recognize, and when we talk about things such as a moral code, that the Bible is the standard setter, but it is the church that is the standard bearer. And if we're not willing to bear the standard that Scripture sets for us and make that proclamation from the pulpit, and live it out in the pews, uh, then I think the observations of, of, of Finney, as, as uncomfortable as they may be, are perhaps sadly bang on. We'll take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. Our special guest in this segment of the program is Pastor Andrew Chavarria as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. One of the issues here, perhaps at hand, is we're sort of um, doing some quarterbacking and analysis of what's happened in the the moral and spiritual decline in America in the last generation, maybe going on two generations now. One of I think the issues uh, that is contributory to all of this uh, is the perception, real or otherwise, that there is a tremendous amount of disunity 
within the body of Christ. Now, let me hasten to add, some people say, well, you know, that's the problem with doctrine. Doctrine divides. Well, doctrine should divide. Uh, There is a reason why Christ even himself talked about separating the wheat from the chaff. So good, sound doctrine is critically important. That's not the kind of disunity I'm talking about. It's the sense of everybody kind of their own corner, doing their own thing, um, not, not giving much concern to a sense of, of cooperation with one mind, one heart, one spirit, uh, one goal of what Christ has called us to do, uh, to love our God, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, and of course to go about uh, the Great Commission and sharing the gospel in all the world. I think the effectiveness of that really is compromised when there is a tremendous sense of disunity about the body in many respects just because we're too busy doing our own thing, or we feel uh, intimidated because somebody may be a little bit more successful in one arena or another than we are, and so, you know, rather than working together, we shy away from it because we feel uh, a bit intimidated. Uh, what about that perspective, uh, Pastor Chavarria? Is this issue of, of a lack of unity contributory to this problem? You know, I, I think it is. I really think it is. I think the modern American church uh, today is so disjointed that that's why we can't find a foothold um, in making America what Ronald Reagan called that shining city on a hill. Um, you know, and, and we're, we're so disjointed. To the part. There is, you're right, sound doctrine is needed. I mean, you know, one of the ways that I break it down for, and this kind of makes it real for people, is the Bible took about approximately 1,600 years to write. It was 40 different authors, 300 years between the two testaments where God didn't reveal himself to anyone. Then you have those 40 different guys that you have to talk about that didn't ever cross paths, but the central message is Jesus. And God took a lot of time to preserve all of that for us. And uh, when you think about it that way, you know, it's really easy to say, you know, God said what he meant, he meant what he said. And one of the things that God says in the word, in the book of 1 Corinthians, is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, let there be no divisions among you. You know, I'm a part of a group, uh, it's called the Radicals. And uh, we all have different, quote-unquote, denominational backgrounds. Everybody has a different denominational background. Uh, But we all agreed, and everybody's a Christian leader or a pastor or a preacher somewhere. But we started this group together. We meet every Tuesday night uh, on a a video platform. And we all started meeting together. And and among us, there's millions of people that follow us on social media and, and, uh, and come to our churches and hear us preach. We all agreed that it was time in America to break down the walls of denominationalism and to start being Christians. That's it. The Bible doesn't, you know, it's funny. The Bible doesn't mention the word, and I know this might step on some people's toes, but if you want to hear and understand more about what I'm going to say, we'll talk about the event that I'm talking about later. But the Bible never says Catholic. The Bible never says Pentecostal. The Bible never says Baptist. The Bible never says Methodist. The Bible calls those that follow after Jesus Christians. And when we start following Jesus and we start deciding to be Christians, 
man, that's unity. That's oneness. We have the doctrine. The doctrine is the word of God. That's the Bible. We have that. And if we can stick to that and we just call ourselves Christians, we will turn, not not the nation, we'll turn the world upside down. Of course, one of the other challenges I think that's contributory that goes hand in hand with that, and not only that sense of, of competition as opposed to cooperation, but also the fact that sometimes there's so much of an emphasis on, on doing as opposed to being, and I think that goes to the heart of another big issue, and that is just a, a lack of really understanding what true discipleship really <laughs> looks like. People think I show up to church on Sunday morning, drop a couple of bucks in the offering plate, uh, you know, whenever there's a bake sale, I always be sure to contribute, and they think that therefore qualifies them uh, as a quote-unquote Christian, but they've never been through a discipleship process, they don't know how to pray, they don't know how to read the Word, they've never shared their faith with another person. Right. Right. We just basically convert people and then we throw them to the wolves and expect them to be mature Christians. And it's just never going to work. And when it doesn't work out, then we wonder why. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Never. It's never worked out that way. And that's what we do, honestly. And that's what we're doing to our young people today. And if you look, um, we're losing probably about 70 percent, 60 to 70 percent of our youth groups leave the church and don't come back by the time they hit college age. We're losing them to sec- we're losing them to secular progressivism. Mm. And uh and, and that that's a big that's a staggering number. Sixty to seventy percent. In the churches of Christ it's higher than that. It's seventy five to eighty percent. Um but I you know, like I said, I preach for I'll, I'll preach at any church they want me to come and speak at. Uh but but here's the thing. Here's the thing with that and it, it's it's very simple. It's very simple because I, I mentioned the word identity. I'm a, I'm a big talker when it comes to identity. And um, one of the things that people like to pawn off now, and you've probably heard it said, um, people probably said it, I know I've said it. We tell people all the time, hey, I'm just, I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. And, and that's true to a degree, but I'm not a sinner anymore. I'm saved. And, and the reason that we tell people I'm a sinner just like you is because of the next phrase that we say after that. We tell people, because, you know, look, man, all you have to do is follow Jesus. That's it. All you have to do is follow Jesus. But Paul, you know, going back to the book of 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, we, and Jesus in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, he tells us to go and make disciples. You know, so we have a responsibility as Christians to be an example and to disciple, teach them in the ways in which to follow after Jesus. And we don't want to do that anymore. So we just tell people, hey, I'm a sinner just like you. All you have to do is follow Jesus, because that takes the whole don't don't follow me. Don't. But here's the thing. Me as a Christian, as a church leader. I want people to follow me. I want people behind me because that means that there's somebody behind me to catch me when I fall. That means that there's somebody behind me to lift me up when I'm down. You know, so it's okay to teach somebody. And and we don't want to be vulnerable, but you have to be vulnerable when it comes to following Jesus because it's an ultimate act of submission. Well, moreover, that whole notion of iron sharpening iron, that seems yeah. to be a component that's sort of missing. And I think that's also been uh, part of the, the, the fallout of the so-called megachurch movement. And that is that it becomes so impersonal, so disconnected, that there's not that, that human touch, that intimacy, that iron sharpening iron that yeah. Scripture talks of, that is ne- necessary to take place for, I think, true discipleship to form. Yeah. Now, that said, let's talk about... Um, this um, spiritual renewal weekend. Give us details, if you would, Andrew. Yeah, normally when I, I go and speak somewhere, it's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
And uh, one of the things that I, that I want to do over the, over three days, I'm going to be I'm going to do six lessons in three days um, on being one. So it doesn't matter what your faith background is. You don't have to be a member of the Church of Christ to come to this event. If you if you have if you're going to a community church, if you're going to it doesn't matter what kind of church you're going to. We want you to come to this event because here's the thing is. Um, and here's what I'm going to be focusing on. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, the, the, the writer says the word, he uses the first word. The word is remember. So this is something for all of us that we all have to remember, that you one time were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. We've all been there. We've all not had this hope. Well, you know what? God did give us. God did give us hope. In verse 19 of that same chapter, he says, So then now you're no longer strangers and aliens, but now you're a fellow citizen with the saints and are in God's household. If you and I, and it doesn't matter where we came from, it doesn't matter who we are, it doesn't matter how much money we make, what we wear, how much clothes, you know, what we drive, none of that's going to matter. If you are willing to follow Jesus and make Jesus your identity, you're not going to be a stranger anymore. And you're going to be a citizen of God's household. And what we want to talk about over these three days is renew our spirits to be one household. This sense of, of the, the, the sense of cooperation, the sense of working together, the, the sense of building each other up. Because only when we start to do that will we start building our nation back up. Andrew, if folks want to get more information about this, uh, where's the best place for them to go? Uh, AndrewShavaria.com. It's, uh, it's a long last name. I know C-H-A-V-A-R-R-I-L-L-A. Andrew, before that, AndrewShavaria.com. Um, or find me on Twitter. There's a link straight to my, my website on Twitter. It's at Church Patriot. It's really easy. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll be able to find my Facebook, my website, and all the times and the dates and everything are listed there. And, of course, you know, even if you just Google it, you know, uh, <laughs> bowing to the difficulty of your last name, I yeah. found if you just Google Andrew and just get into Shava, R-I-L, yeah. you'll, you'll, you'll find him that way, too. Or, again, the Twitter at, at Church Patriot. Well, Andrew, we appreciate the time and the insights and encourage listeners, hey, this is a good way to get a deeper understanding about what Christ wants for the church when he prayed that we would all be one what does not only that that look like but what does it mean in terms of being able to increase the effectiveness and the impact of the church on the world around us as i said earlier while the bible is the standard setter the church is the standard bearer our thanks to pastor andrew chavaria for being with us tonight on this segment of lifeline and now back to lifeline with craig roberts when you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships, and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. 
I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It, it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. Often and unfortunately, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose. In fact, three purposes. Uh, He said, we're going to make man male and female. And first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are, um, made in our image. Our image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. But they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. And in fact, when God relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God is God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people. He wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. 
he was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to, to give them instruction on how they were to, to function as men. And then he says, then I'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed. And so God always starts with the man. That's why in the garden, God said, Adam, where are you? Not Adam and Eve, where are y'all? <laughs> I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes. It should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians eleven three. God is over Christ, it says. Christ is over every man. A man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. It's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the, the continuation of that passage says, and husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church. And of course, if we look at that model, we realize, well, Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he in fact gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? 
Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior, and the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really into, willing, ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Clip Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have join us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of, of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' Lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table to bear when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what what uh, what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and, it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. He cannot, he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the, in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, one thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage. Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom. And this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal. And there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth. And it's, it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by um, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. 
Well, absolutely. Um, you know, as you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take can uh, start off maybe in our mind small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged and uh, you, you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before he wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriages, and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball as you're suggesting, and then that sense of, of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize, and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are, there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is, um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a, a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. Uh, one time I was, uh, a guy ran into my car and, uh, and, and then ran off and then uh, drove off. So here I'm going around with a dent that I didn't create. And every time I look at that dent, uh, I'm reminded, I'm, I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong. But what that debt was doing, it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings. So I had to release that person even though they, they, they hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt. And that was a decision of my will. But what, what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two, two, they're related but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person, uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's, there's an individual, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, what? You hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done. I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. Mm. I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address 
the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there? In, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction and the individual who created the wound in the first place can has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the the person who committed the sin needs to repent. And repentance, repentance is not just a word, it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit, that demonstrates you really mean it, you really meant what you said by things you do that are different, that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get to couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand. Something small, but done regularly, because men are tired for being inconsistent, that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and, I, uh, and when I say daily, I mean regularly because I know you won't hit it every day. But but let her know that God is a part of this relationship and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talk about golf, anything else, you she she can zero in on your eyes and she can share. If, you, if she's doing this every week, well, she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated. And then uh, fourthly, uh, make sure you are dating her. And by dating her, I don't mean asking her what do you want to do today. I mean you you doing things that are fun for both of you. You can't discuss any problems on a date. That's strictly for fun, and you do it on a regular basis, given you know, the realities of your life. Then I ask the woman to do one thing. Make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stays full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.